to start. I welcome all of you to class tonight. It's good to see you. I think they had a meal in there a while ago. I hope that you're all very well satisfied along that line. <clears throat> now for our lesson tonight. In our two previous lessons, I've talked to you about two of Satan's most powerful and therefore most effective strategies to overcome us and lead us into sin and then into his kingdom of darkness. He has other strategies that are also very powerful and he uses them as well. Daily with them and others that we'll talk about, he claims the souls of thousands of people around the world every day. Being oblivious to his presence and activity, people easily fall victim to him. We just don't want, him, want it to happen to us. Satan knows human nature exceedingly well because he's been studying us ever since the beginning with Adam and Eve, and he's learned our weaknesses. He knows them well. Few people are aware of his presence and activity. They don't think about it because really the devil as a reality seems unreal, unlikely, and it's often discounted with humor. There's a million jokes about the devil, but Satan is very real. He is very present among us. He works tirelessly all the time to claim our souls before God does, if he can. And if we are Christians, he is constantly working hard to break and destroy our allegiance with our Creator. Tonight, we're going to look at another of the devil's highly effective strategies to become aware of it and to see what we need to do to resist and to defeat him. The Bible alerts us to it in so many places. But the one I've chosen tonight to lead us into the lesson is in the 13th chapter of Romans, verses 12 through 13. It reads, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. The name of the strategy of Satan we're looking at tonight is stated in those last words, the flesh in regard to its lusts. Stated more briefly, it is the lust of the flesh, the exact wording that is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Let's examine this word lust as it's used in the Bible and not as it is thrown around in daily speech. The word so translated in Romans 12 and verse 14 is pronounced epithumia, Epithumia. It's the simple word thumia with a prefix epi. Now let me explain that. 
The word thumia is the common word for wanting something. It can be expressed and usually is by the English words desire, like, or want. For example, if the waitress asks you, what do you want to drink? And you say, coffee. But then the waitress says, well, we just happen to be out of coffee this morning. You wouldn't throw a fit. You probably would settle for milk or orange juice or grape juice or something. You want the coffee, but you'll agree to one of the other drinks. They're okay. But suppose that's not the case. Suppose you want that coffee so bad that when you're told they're out, you get mad. You get up and kick your chair over and you storm out of the place grumbling and complaining. Folks, the word thumia doesn't apply anymore. Your passion has gone way beyond just wanting. You're craving it. You feel like you've got to have it. That's where that word prefix, I mean that prefix, epi, comes into play in the word for lust in Romans 13, 14. Because it carries the lust of the flesh beyond just merely wanting something that's physical and that feels good. It raises it to the level of feeling like you've just got to have it and that you will do whatever is necessary to get to it. The word flesh basically means uh, what feels good as far as physical contact is concerned. That is an elevated desire to touch, to taste, to smell, to experience something. The more the physical sensation is produced, the more you want that experience. If it feels good, you want more of it. If it feels better, you want still more of it. And the text in Romans 13, verses 12 through 14, for such stimuli are specified carousing, drunkenness, sexual immorality or promiscuity, and sensuality. Other scriptures name several more physical lusts that we experience. For example, in Proverbs 23, verses 20 and 21, it includes drunkenness and uh, gluttony. It says, do not be heavy drinkers of wine or with heavy drinkers of wine or with the gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty. A glutton is a person who does not eat to satisfy hunger. He eats for pleasure. He doesn't eat until he is sufficient. He goes on beyond that and eats to excess, even to when it is uncomfortable. And on a special occasion like a feast, uh, he doesn't just feast when other people do on special occasions. He feasts every day. All day. Have you ever heard anybody say, I just eat one meal a day, all day long? Other instances include using recreational drugs, wearing exclusive or exquisite clothing, laziness, 
excessive sleeping, and the list goes on and on. This lesson would take forever if I were to deal with all of the different lusts of the flesh that can be identified and give scripture and, and address them, but I can't do that. So what I'm going to do is limit it. I'm going to limit it to these four specifics that are named in Numbers 13, verse 13. The principles that are involved in those and how we can avoid them would just as well apply to any of the rest like gluttony or recreational drugs or laziness or whatever. The first one, and I hope you're following along in the text there, is, I'm using the New American Standard, is carousing. That is the New American Standard translation of the word komos, komos. It's usually expressed as revelry in many versions. Our modern phrase, wild party, though, really carries the exact idea of that original word, komos. It refers to a group thing where a lot of people do whatever makes them feel good in a common spirit of uncontrolled abandon. It almost always includes drunkenness, lewd dancing, loud singing, merry shouting, and, and the rest. You have probably seen videos at one time or another of the Mardi Gras celebration in New Orleans in the spring. If you have, you've seen <clears throat> one of the most expressive demonstrations of Comos revelry to be found in our culture. You may have heard the expression party animal, which refers to someone who craves this kind of activity and is constantly looking for the wild party to go to, either by invitation or by crashing. There's nothing for a Christian to be found in revelry because it has no respect for the morality and purity of the spiritual life. It appeals only to the body, to physical sensation, to excessive carnal indulgence. That's what it's all about. It's nothing less than a tool of Satan to lead a person into sin, to corrupt his soul, to make him love the world and its pleasures above everything and cause him to forget all about God and just go entirely for the carnal life. The devil urges you, if it feels good, just do it. That's a popular slogan in our culture, and just do it. The last place that Satan wants you to be is in a church like this. Listening to a preacher give you the truth or a Bible teacher instructing you on warnings like that in Galatians 6, verses 6 and 7, 7 and 8, where it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now let's move on to the second um, term in Romans 13, 13 that names the lust of the flesh and this is drunkenness. We all know what that means. Drinking alcoholic beverages, 
until your body is so poisoned by the alcohol that changes happen. Your speech gets slurred, you stagger, your vision is impaired, and when far enough along, you pass out. When drunk, you lose the ability to reason, you say crazy things, you lose inhibitions, any standard of morality is drowned in the alcohol, and the person who is drunk will do things they probably wouldn't think of doing if they were sober. Why do people then get drunk if it is known that bad effects like this are going to follow? Well, there are actually several reasons, but perhaps the main one is that in the early stages of drinking, and I'm not saying this by experience, it's from what I've been told by others, that it feels good. Remember, there is such a thing as the pleasure of sin for a brief time, for a season, but another reason is social conformity. When everyone else is drinking, most people find it very difficult to abstain. You don't want to be the only one out of seven people that are together not drinking. You want to fit in. You want to be like all the rest. In fact, there are occasions when refusing to drink is considered bad manners, a breach of social etiquette. The appeal of alcohol is a very powerful tool of the devil to submerge you in the lust of the flesh, and it will do it. Though people about you and through social persuasion, Satan will convince you there's not any harm in drinking it. That is, a Christian is just as free to drink it as anybody else is. Forget that scripture, abstain from the appearance of evil. Folks, I could say a great deal more about this, but I'd rather just read a scripture right out of the Bible that says it better than I can. It's a passage that I have not heard read from a pulpit in more than 30 years. Before that, I used to hear it fairly often. And I wonder, why don't we hear it anymore? Well, you're going to hear it tonight. It's in Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 33. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contention? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without a cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine do not look on the wine when it is red. That's when it's fermented, got alcohol in it. We drank grape juice here that's purple. It's not fermented. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. But at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Folks, we need to drill that into the heads of our young people. Temptation is coming ahead for them. You can believe it. So that's what God says about the danger and the folly of drinking alcoholic beverages. Who are we going to believe? What God says 
or the wisdom and the voice of, of Satan from society about us that tells us it's okay, just don't go too far. The third word in this list or name in Romans 13, 13, naming a lust of the flesh, is in the New American Standard, sexual promiscuity. In the Greek, it is the word koite, koite. It's a word for bed. Sometime tonight, you'll go to bed. You'll go to koite. But the meaning here is not the bed itself, but what a couple does in bed that's forbidden, fornication, adultery, when the male and the female are not married. This appeals to a very powerful urge that can be compared to a river and a current, or a current and a river, excuse me, that leads to a great waterfall. The current is always there, just like sexual desire is always present, but the river current is not really great until you get close to the falls. If you can swim or paddle your boat, you can get over to the shore pretty easy up to a point. But when you get near to the falls, and there's a critical point there, the current speeds up as the water plunges over and the, water be, the force of the water becomes very powerful. If you wait too long, you're helpless and you're going to plunge right over the fall. What could have been prevented becomes irresistible after you pass that point and you're ruined. I was reading an article just the other day online about the number of people that have gone over Niagara Falls in the last hundred years Folks, it's a few hundred. When a couple are together and body chemistry becomes active and the temperature of passion rises up to a point, you can stop the process in one way or another. But if you don't, if you let it proceed, you get past a, a, a critical point. The chemistry in your body just becomes too powerful. The heat of passion becomes so high it melts your ability to resist. That's when Satan has taken control of you and is using you or using this strategy to lead you to sin in a surge of abandoned passion. You're in his camp at that point. You've deserted your Lord. Satan is strongly present today in advertising, movies, TV, and literature, in the styling of clothes, in prevailing public opinion to lure you strongly toward the waterfall of carnal immorality. Did you know in common everyday advertising today, you see the what was called pornography 30 or 40 years ago and was banned. Today, we've accepted it. So to whom do you pay respect? to the biblical standard of morality or to the message of a demoralized society that persuades you accept our fashion. You're a modern person. The year is 2023, not 1923. And the fourth word in this list 
in Romans 13, 13, naming a lust of the flesh is sensuality. This word needs some attention. It's the New American Standard Translation of the Greek word aselgeia, aselgeia. That is usually translated as shamelessness, having no shame. Folks, this is called by Greek scholars the ugliest word in the Greek language. It indicates a person who has lost all sense of shame, who does not care what people think of him. Honor and decency mean nothing to him or her. Such a person is so captivated by fleshly lust that he or she has no problem with doing publicly what other people wouldn't even think of unless it's another person like themselves. And folks, that is the case of the drunkard, the drug addict, the glutton at a feast, and really especially the people who work in the pornography industry. They no longer care what people think about them. And their intention very often is to offend as much as they possibly can decent folks. And when we blush or cover our eyes over something so provocative, they laugh at us. You're still living in the dark ages. You've probably heard of Hugh Hefner and probably Larry Flint. That name's two out of a few thousand, but they're the major ones. Hefner was the one who started Playboy magazine and carried it along in grand style for near 50 years. Larry Flint was the one who started Hustler magazine. For many decades, these two men especially flaunted pornography right in the face of the American public. And they became filthy rich with it. They were so successful in building up an empire of lucrative business that it came to the point they were accepted by society in general as respected businessmen. And folks, these two men, especially, but others behind them, normalized pornography to a great many Americans and to some extent to all of us without our maybe realizing it. They have corrupted the morality of this country in a big way. But this isn't a new thing, really. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of such people in his time, which was about more or less 600 A.D., Society at that time had degenerated to a very low level and people were committing outright lewd acts in public. In fact, in worship service, what they call worship service. Here's what Jeremiah said to them, and this is Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done. Folks, in the Bible, when it says abomination, it means as bad as it can get. Jeremiah, for God says, they were not ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. You couldn't make them blush. They're past that. 
You see, Satan had gained such control over them by the lust of the flesh that they had lost every modicum of decency and self-respect. Their activities in clothing, or the lack of it, had no restraint. They flaunted sin right in the face of everybody. And they became the devil's agents in the midst of God's nation to ruin it. And do you know what? They succeeded except for a small remnant. Folks, that's where we want to be in our society, in that remnant. The message that God had for those people through Jeremiah was this. I'm going to destroy you, nearly all of you. I'm going to wreck your country and leave it in ruins. I'm going to make it even uninhabitable except for owls and lizards and bats. I'd now like to give a biblical example of Satan using the lust of the flesh to produce corrupt, uh, confusion, evil, degradation, and death even to some of God's people. David had many children because he had many wives. Two of them were named Amnon, a man, and Tamar, a woman. David was the father of both, but they had different mothers. Their drama is unfolded in 1 Samuel 13. Tamar was very beautiful, and Amnon couldn't take his eyes off her because he was lusting for her more and more and more. He wanted badly to fornicate her, but he just couldn't think of a way to arrange it. But he had a friend. His name was Jonadad. He knew a way. He told Amnon, just pretend you're sick and request that Samar, that Tamar rather, come to your private quarters and prepare a meal for you. This was brought to David. They were both his children, a son and a daughter. He didn't see any harm in it. And David was being foolish at that time. He should have. But Tamar obeyed what her daddy told her. He was the king. She went to Amnon's private quarters and there before him she prepared his meal for him. But as she was moving around preparing the meal, boy, he was following her with her eyes and every movement. And his lust was building and building and building, getting hotter and hotter and hotter. When the food was prepared, he said, bring it here to me in my innermost chamber, my bedchamber. She did that. And then he ordered all of his servants and guards, get out of here. Empty this apartment. They did. Folks, I'm not going to tell you the rest of it. I'm just going to read it to you from Scripture. This is 1 Samuel 13, verses 11 through 14. When she brought it to him, he grabbed hold of her and said, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Where could I go to get rid of my reproach? 
And as for you, Amnon, you will become like one of the fools in Israel. Just speak to the king. He will not withhold me from you. He would have married a half-brother and a half-sister. However, Amnon was beyond the point of reasoning. He was controlled by white-hot lust. And because he was stronger than her, he violated her, and he lay with her. Amnon's behavior shows that the great power of the lust of the flesh, when it is not restrained and allowed to progress, what Amnon did has been done countless times through history right up till today, and it's probably going on somewhere right now. Folks, it gains control, this lust does, this white-hot uh, lust of the flesh. It disregards wisdom. You can't talk to it. It won't listen. It disregards good advice. It only has one thing, rush into this activity as fast as I can to satisfy myself, whatever the cost. Folks, that's Satan at work. He takes control of our human propensity to experience something that excites us and feels good and propels you to go for it at any cost. Folks, that's in the nature of each of us. We must not let it happen to show that sin always, always, always leads to bad consequences. Let us follow the story of Amnon to its end because there's still a lot left. When he had finished the act, Amnon developed a great hatred for his sister and threw her out. You know, many times when a man violates a woman, that's his next passion. He hates her. He wants to get her out of his sight. Folks, what this reveal, reveals is there was nothing in the nature of love involved in the Amnon-Tamar relationship. What Amnon did to his sister was driven by unbridled lust, a compelling appetite to have physical union with his beautiful sister. And here's something I want to heavily stress to anyone who will hear it. Am Tamar had nothing to do with this. She was very beautiful. But folks, physical beauty is a gift of God, like other gifts, the gift to sing, the gift to paint, the gift to play a musical instrument, athletic gift. It's a gift to appreciate, a gift to respect, a gift to value, not a gift to corrupt by satisfying lust. Tamar was doing no more than she had been told to do by her father, who was the king. I emphasize this because rape victims, women, often feel they are somehow at fault for what has happened to them. They think, maybe I did something or maybe I said something without realizing it that stirred up this person to the point that he took advantage of me and violated and corrupted me. Folks, when a man has surrendered to physical lust, he is stimulated by the fact that the person who is a woman is a woman. That's all he cares about. She is a female. 
She's the person that can satisfy this craving I've got. A heart that is possessed by lust has no respect for welfare, dignity, and innocence. And a young girl is extremely naive who thinks that she is winning the heart of her boyfriend by submitting to him physically. But this isn't the end of the story. Tamar had a half, a full brother, <clears throat> full brother. His name was Absalom. And folks, Absalom was one of those kind of men you don't want to mess with. And when Amnon raped Tamar, he was messing with Absalom. He didn't realize it. He found out later on. He was messing with the wrong person. Absalom, he was vindictive. He was prone to violence. He loved it. He liked to fight and hurt and that sort of thing. He waited two full years after this terrible event so that it could seem to fade into the past. Then he enacted a plan he had been brooding. He gave a feast. He invited all of his brothers, especially, you guessed it, Amnon. Absalom instructed his servants, watch Amnon carefully at the feast and notice, as the text says, when his heart is merry with wine. In other words, when he's about half drunk and his inhibitions and, and cautions are down, then they were to attack him, several of him, and kill him, and folks, they carried it out to the last detail. This vividly shows the biblical principle that sin, especially that which results or is the result of the lust of the flesh, will end in death. Not always physical death at first. It may be social death. It might be your own um, emotional health that dies and, and various things. Spiritually, of course, you're dead. As I've said, Satan was behind this vile act. And Satan is the producer of death. In contrast to that, God gives life. Remember that. Satan always brings death. God brings life. As we near the end of this lesson, I want to show how Jesus was confronted by the temptation of the lust of the flesh, presented to him by Satan in person. You know, Jesus was tempted every way we are, but he didn't sin. The account of this, if you want to follow, is in Luke 4, verses 2 through 4. Jesus had just spent 40 days in the wilderness of Judea when verse 2 begins. It says that he ate nothing <clears throat> during those 40 days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. This is the kind of hunger that's so great that you just kind of just about can't think of anything else except getting some food down here. When those days ended, he was famished. And the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones on the ground to become bread. Those stones down in that area, the wilderness of Judea, they do look like loaves of bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Having gone 40 days without food, Jesus' physical body was starved. It was craving it. 
His desire for food doubtless was extreme, and to get a loaf of bread to eat would have been extremely tempting. When Satan told him to turn one of those stones into bread, it was indeed to satisfy a real lust of the flesh. Eating is a physical activity that satisfies a physical craving. Jesus needed food acutely. He had the power to turn those stones into bread and fill himself. It seems that this would have been enough justification to do it. Folks, this is far more justification than you and I feel like uh, justifies us to do something that's shady or maybe even wrong. We'll do it and say, well, I couldn't help it. Uh, this, this thing about me was so bad that I just couldn't hold back. Jesus did. He's our example. But Jesus' mind and spirit were what was in control of his body, and he knew what Satan was up to. He knew that Satan wanted him to lift physical needs above spiritual needs. And that's why Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8.3, Man shall not live by bread alone. Matthew records the rest of that verse, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Folks, there are two parts to anyone's personal life, your body and your soul. Both parts need food. Our body needs physical food. Our souls need spiritual food. And here's what few people realize. The greater of the two is the spiritual food. Folks, if you had to go a week without either physical food or spiritual food, which would you choose? I hope it's spiritual. In the time of temptation, Jesus here says, it is more critical to tend to the soul, physical needs, even if they're very powerful and very appealing, must be controlled, they must be suspended. We must always put what is spiritual and eternal first and above that which is physical and temporary. That's what it means to deny the lust of the flesh. And that is critical in saving your soul at the judgment. That's why this is taught to us in the Bible. That's why Jesus gave the example, so that we will make the right choice, even when it is very, very difficult in many ways to make the right 